Welcome to Madison Avenue Presbyterian Church. We hope this message encourages you and inspires you to serve God and your neighbor. If you want to learn more about our ministry, head over to mapc.com. If you're looking for a community where you can deepen your faith, we invite you to join us every Sunday at 1030 online or in person. Our gospel lesson comes from Luke, chapter 9, verses 51 through 62. Hear now the word of God. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem, and he sent messengers ahead of him. On their way, they entered a village of the Samaritans to prepare for his arrival, but they did not receive him, because his face was set toward Jerusalem. When his disciples James and John saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them. Then they went on to another village. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To another he said, follow me. But he said, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. And Jesus said to him, No one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Where is joy to be found? It's a very difficult question these days. Where is joy to be found? From the moment I turned 16, I knew where my joy was to be found. It was in a car. I wanted any car. It didn't matter what kind how old or how slow, I was just certain that I needed a car. And as it happened, around that same time, my dad needed to get rid of a car. It was old, constantly breaking, and the air conditioner had just given out. Summer was quickly turning Texas, my home state, into an oven, and my dad happily handed over the keys, reminding me first, though, that gas and insurance were now my responsibility. Sure, Dad, whatever, just give me the car. In my mind, I was already flying down the highway, very warm wind in my hair, enjoying the freedom of my own wheels. Before long, though, I was learning about the joys of owning and maintaining an elderly vehicle. I had to pay for the gas and the insurance and the tires and the inspection and the catalytic converter and the new tires and the oil changes and the list goes on. It quickly became clear that I was going to have to get my first job to pay for all of this. But that was okay because at least I could drive myself there and back. Well, I got my first job at a trampoline warehouse, which is a story for another day. And I quickly became a workhorse. At first, it was only a few hours. I just needed to make enough to put gas in the tank, pay insurance. And then I requested a few more hours because tires aren't going to pay for themselves. And then a couple more hours just to get some repairs made. And at about the same time, my older brother got a car of his own. 
much newer car, I might add. We've always been friendly, but at this time in our lives, we weren't best friends. And so even if I was going broke trying to get my car working, I was not about to ask him for a ride because then I'd be dependent on him. I might owe him gas money or a favor. I'd have to run his errands, listening to his music. But what I wanted, what I longed for, was freedom, independence, not obligation. Well, one night, I'm walking out of my minimum wage job after a long shift spent on my feet. I unlock my car, sit in the driver's seat, put my keys into the ignition, and it starts up. Well, I take my CD folder out of the glove box, yes, I'm that old, and I start looking for what CD I want to play. And as I'm staring down in my lap, consumed with what I should listen to, I sense the smell of smoke, and I look up, and it's billowing from my hood. It becomes clear to me that my car isn't going anywhere anytime soon, so I take out my phone and I call my brother. Within minutes, he's there to pick me up. I mention that I had to work through my lunch break, so I am starving. He takes me to our favorite burger place and buys me lunch. And at this point, sitting in the cool air conditioning of my brother's car, stomach full of good food, it begins to dawn on me that I made a huge mistake. I was spending all of my free time each week working to pay for the promise of my car, the promise of freedom, the promise of independence and escape. But instead, I was scrubbing toilets to pay for a new catalytic converter. See, the very thing I thought would grant me my freedom came to own me, my time, and my resources. What's worse is that the thing that promised me freedom to make choices that brought me joy had actually driven a wedge between my brother and me. Sure, I still had the freedom to work countless hours a week to get my car running again, but I found that I much preferred dependence on my brother. And I think this is the challenge of our scripture today. In both the epistle and the gospel readings, we're given a glimpse into God's definition of freedom, and we find that it's quite different than the freedom of economics, the freedom of politics, and the freedom of relationships. We're given the gospel version of freedom. And just like everything else about the gospel, it runs contrary to all we think we know. So let's begin with the Galatians passage, where Paul is drawing a dividing line between life in the spirit and life in the flesh. Life under the gospel and life alone. He writes, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not again submit to the yoke of slavery. For you were called to freedom, brothers and sisters. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for self-indulgence, but through love, become enslaved to one another. For the whole law is summed up in a single commandment. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Paul is saying two important things here. First, that the opposite of slavery to the flesh is not freedom in the flesh. It is slavery to one another. If we trade slavery to the flesh for freedom in the flesh, Paul tells us it looks like self-indulgence. 
And in the Greek, we don't find the word self-indulgence, but I think it's a good translation nonetheless. Instead, we find the phrase literally translates to, only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, into a tool to be used by the flesh for its own ends. If slavery to the flesh means we are the unwilling participants to our own sin, then freedom in the flesh makes us willing participants to our own sin. It is the difference between doing wrong because you don't know better and doing wrong despite knowing better. Paul tells us that the gospel frees us from our slavery to the flesh. We don't have to continue in the same patterns of sin. We are free to choose righteousness. We are also free to choose to continue to sin. The second important thing Paul says is that the freedom we seek, the life-giving and liberatory promise of the gospel, is entirely dependent on how we treat others. Our freedom is so bound up with the plight of our fellow man that Paul says we must become slaves to one another if we want to experience this freedom. And I have to tell you, this is not what I wanted to hear. I wanted to hear that if I act good enough, if I follow the rules and mind my own business, I can live a good life. I wanted to be reassured that I'm allowed to focus on my choices and my desires and my needs. I wanted to be told that my choices are my own and I don't owe anything to anyone because I know best how to make myself happy. I'm the expert in my own likes and dislikes, favorite foods, friends, etc. But instead, Paul says something completely different. Paul tells us that so long as we are focused only on ourselves, we can't be free. And this is no less relevant today than it was when Paul wrote these words, because how often are we encouraged to focus on ourselves? How often are we told that inner peace is just one purchase away? one partner away, one promotion away. If only we can cut ourselves off from negative relationships, cut back on bad habits, invest in ourselves more, then, then we can be free from the sense of inadequacy, the sense of a fallen and hopeless world. I want to be heard clearly now. I'm not talking about much needed self-care or self-love. Those are beautiful gifts of the Spirit. No, I'm talking about the narrative that says, if you would just prioritize yourself above others, you'd be happy. If you would just prioritize your family above everything else, then you would finally be happy. What matters most is you. See, the reason this doesn't work, the reason this has never worked, is because it is based on a lie. And this lie is lived out in the ways Paul lists a few verses later. He says, live by the Spirit, and do not gratify the desires of the flesh. For what the flesh desires is opposed to the Spirit, and what the Spirit desires is opposed to the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to prevent you from doing what you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you're not subject to the law. Now, the works of the flesh are obvious, sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy, anger, quarrels, dissension, factions, envy, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these. 
I think it's important to read this list mostly because we don't actually believe that our sins fall onto this list. We don't think we struggle with these things. And I personally have never had to make a pastoral care visit to someone suffering from sorcery. Instead, the self-indulgence that Paul warns of is usually found in noble pursuits, things that society and the church value in high esteem. Things like family, work, school. But at their foundation, they all tell the same lie. And this is the lie. You are responsible for your own joy. This is the responsibility that comes with freedom in the flesh, self-indulgence. <clears throat> but it isn't possible to maintain. We can't be the source of our own joy. Because joy based on personal achievement is unsustainable. Joy based on family relationships is unsustainable. Joy based on self-image is unsustainable. What happens when the promotion never comes? Better yet, what happens when you've made it all the way to the top and there are no promotions left? What happens when your family relationships are on the rocks? And worst of all, what happens when you fail to be the person you want to be? What happens when you let yourself down? Where is joy to be found? This is where Jesus meets us. This is where the gospel Paul writes about changes everything. When finally we realize that freedom in the flesh cannot produce joy, when we see that the things we once believed would free us have now made us slaves to ourselves, when we are finally disillusioned of the idea that we might be the source of our own joy, then Jesus enters and reminds us it doesn't have to be this way. In opposition to everything you have been told, you don't need to be the source of your own joy. You're not responsible for enduring life alone. There's another way. Through love, become enslaved to one another. That's it. Sounds easy, right? If, like me, you find this a bit troubling, let's unpack it. Because the same word is used for both slave and servant in the Greek. Some translators render this phrase, become servants to one another. And I think we need both translations because they both get at a separate sense of what Paul is saying here. Becoming servants to our fellow Christians is a voluntary act, and as such denotes greater sincerity. <clears throat> doing something not required of you will always mean a little bit more than doing something you just have to do. On the other hand, becoming slaves to one another gets at the heart of Paul's understanding of the gospel. Paul believes that when we are saved, Jesus makes a claim on our life. That claim comes with definite responsibilities. For instance, as Christians, we do not have a choice as to whether or not we worship God. We have to. As Christians, we do not have the choice of whether or not to love our neighbor. It just comes with the identity. When we are saved, the Holy Spirit compels us through a process of sanctification in which we become more like Jesus over the course of our lives. This isn't optional. And this is not to say we lack free will. To the contrary, we may choose disobedience and often do. And that's what we call sin. But when we aren't busy sinning, we are busy being made into the type of servant that Jesus was. 
Returning to Paul's slave versus servant metaphor, I think we need both understandings. And now that we've discussed this strange freedom that Paul writes about, we can go deeper into what this looks like in practice. Paul writes, By contrast, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, generosity, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. There is no law against such things. And those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also be guided by the Spirit. Living by the Spirit means we voluntarily become servants to one another. We see servitude to our fellow Christians as a natural response to the claim Jesus has made on our lives. We see that the true source of our joy is found in relationship with the indwelling Spirit of God, the Spirit of God who will never leave us, never stop loving us, the Spirit of God who reassures us of the promises of God, namely that we can do nothing to separate ourselves from God, that our joy is not contingent upon our performance, our peace, our peace is kept in God. So, when you sit down in your car, exhausted from your day's work, hungry for good food, and what little joy you have left literally goes up in smoke before your eyes, say a quick prayer. Call someone who loves you. You are not alone. God sees you and longs to bring you joy. I've been careful not to use the word happiness as a synonym for the joy we find in Jesus because happiness is too flimsy a word to express what we are given in the gospel. The good news of great joy that Luke writes of earlier in his account is that Jesus would be born to a poor family in an unremarkable village, that he would live an authentic, difficult, and beautiful life filled with controversy and compassion. The good news we receive describes an innocent man betrayed by his best friends, wrongfully executed, and laid to rest by his grieving followers. But early in the morning, on the third day, this man rose again, and his rising freed us from the grip of the flesh. It freed us to live for something greater than ourselves. It is not a happy story, but it is good news. It is the source of peace that surpasses understanding. It is the source of our joy. And upon hearing this good news of great joy, we are called into a life few of us could imagine. A life where we are free to live for ourselves, but we are offered the privilege of living for another. A life where our joy is not earned, our peace is not dependent on our performance, a life overflowing with love such that we cannot help but serve those in need. This life is available to you today, and my prayer is that you would begin living it. Amen.